one of them, is uh, put before us at the deathbed of Jacob. There's various fathers throughout Genesis, the patriarchs. Here's the third of the, the great three, the final. Jacob is on his deathbed. Uh, he has seen many days, many years. We're told that his eyes are dim with age. And here, as he uh, lays there weak, he calls his sons, 12 of them, to come and gather around him because he has to transfer a particular blessing on each one of them, which is not just like a normal blessing, as we've said. It is not uh, like a good Christmas card uh, that you might get in the mail that says, Merry Christmas, be happy. Like, that's, that's pleasant and that's good, and we'll take those. But this is much different. This is a prophetic oracle. He is actually putting something upon them, speaking something that has to happen. Uh, it's a uh, performative type of speech. And on Christmas morning, this morning, we see this amazing part given to one oracle that's different than all the others, to his son Judah. It says this, When Jacob called his sons, he said this, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. And we'll look at the first three here. His oldest, his firstborn, Reuben, he says, You are my firstborn. You are my might, the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. But then he says, You are unstable as water, and you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it, and he went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers, he says. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. Oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. To Judah, his fourth son, he says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. The word Judah means it has the word praise in it. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, and your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down and crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him, Judah will be very powerful. And this is the phrase, this is, there has been volumes written on this verse. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his fowl on the vine, 
and his donkey's colt on the choice vine. He was, has washed his garments in wine and his vestures in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. There's a series of 12. There's 12 sons. Those are the first four. And if you thought you had a rough relationship with your dad, the first three didn't go so well. Um, Reuben uh, did something terrible to dishonor his father. He's the firstborn. He's preeminent. But he lost all that. So the next one in line would be Levi or Simeon. They went and slaughtered a whole village. Said, you're violent. Let me not answer into your counsel. Curse your... It, this is the more point where the father should be blessing his children. He said, actually, curse, curse your violence. I don't like your violence. I don't want to be part of it. But it all changed to the, the fourth son, Judah. There's this immense uh, prophetic oracle that's just placed upon him. And then you go on to the other sons and it says various things about them and what will happen to them in very short ways. But nothing compared uh, to the long detail uh, given here to Judah. We know the story, we sang it this morning for Christmas, which is the wise men. They went east. Uh, they were from east. They went west and traveled looking for a star. It says particularly in Matthew 2, where we hear this, is that they had gifts. They were bringing tribute uh, to a king. They said, we saw his star when it rose, and we came to worship him, to worship this one. And we're told that the king in that area, his name was Herod, when he heard that, when Herod heard that, he was troubled. Do you hear that prophecy until tribute comes to him? And to him who has all the obedience of the peoples. There's a reality in which um, Herod, who was the king of the Jews at that time, well, he actually really wasn't. He wasn't part of the tribe of Judah at all in that way. He wasn't a legitimate king. These random wise men from the east are coming and they want to pay tribute, gifts to this one and worship him. And the imposter, Herod, hears this and is uneast. Who, who would be the true king of Israel? Don't want an uprising, don't want a rebellion. And that is the story of Christmas, the star. Now I actually had uh, an amazing um, uh, experience. I don't normally uh, enjoy musicals and singing, but I went to uh, the place uh, in Lancaster, uh, uh, Sights and Sounds, and I saw that play David. And it was amazing. It was beautiful. It, it was just marvelous. And um, the things that they brought out in the scriptures and presented and all the actors and the stage and surrounding. Uh, they even had snow coming down from the sky. It was pretty, it was pretty amazing. Uh, well, we went there with some friends. And afterwards, uh, we went to get some uh, food. And uh, one of them asked me, uh, what, what, what's the meaning of the Star of David? Uh, because in the play, there was in the back on one scene, there was a large um, uh, lit up star, the five point star of David. But see, I should say it this way. The, uh, the way the question was really phrased was, well, you know, like you're a pastor and you study all that theology stuff. Uh, what's the meaning of the star of David? And then when someone says the question that way, you kind of feel like you're supposed to have an answer. 
And I was like, in, in the best way possible, I was like, yeah, um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what the meaning of the Star of David is. I, uh, and so we, we're, we're there and we, uh, of course, when, when in doubt, Wikipedia. And of course, the answer, uh, according to Wikipedia, is uh, uh, there's a lot of meanings. It's as many meanings as you want. Uh, many people interpret it different ways, politically and socially and culturally and religiously. So uh, there's, really not, there's just so many meanings to this one star attached to it. So I'm going to try to answer that question again now. I've thought about it a little bit. Um, biblically, what is the meaning of stars? What is the deal with the Christmas star? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He separated the waters from the waters, we're told. Waters below and waters above. And in between that, he called this thing called expanse, rakia. And uh, he named it heavens. We're told that inside the rakia, he placed all these stars, these kokva. One of the great rebellions, the third century Jewish revolt, the Bar Kokhba rebellion. Uh, he called himself the son of a star. He was thinking back to these prophecies. That's why Herod was all worried. Because when any time a Jewish person starts calling himself a star, you know we're going to start killing each other. <laughs> Um, so Jesus, we came to see his star. Herod said, show me where he's at. Let me, I want to see the star of Israel. Well, in the very beginning, we're told that God actually already gave us a meaning for the stars. The fourth day, in that rakia, that expanse, the heavens, uh, he placed stars, lights all through it. And he said, this will be uh, for signs. These stars will be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. That's the meaning of the stars. They tell time. They're massive clocks in the sky. And throughout history, uh, all of uh, human history has been using the stars to try to find wisdom. Every age, the ancients looked up and saw animals and constellations and fables and stories and myths and they measured them by an ability to see their seasons when it's fall and the solstice and the crop and the harvest. The pre-moderns looked to the stars and what they did is they measured, well, not so much the seasons, they measured maps by them. They navigated the waters by them. That's when Columbus sailed the ocean blue by them. And then modern men, the same thing. Looking to the stars, what is the reason? Where is the age of the earth? What is our origin? They not only now, we don't navigate the waters by the stars below. We navigate the waters above. We use boat ships for water and spaceships in the air. We measure the maps by the stars on the earth. And now we measure the space by light years of the stars. These is what God has given us, these stars. They're great um, uh, clocks and times and metrics to see things and to know things in this world. That's what a star is from the very beginning. We're told in Scripture, that's why God made them. That's why they work that way. And we figured that out. But we're also told this. In Genesis, I mean, I'm sorry, in Psalm 19, it says that the heavens also declare the glory of God. And that's a problem. Because that is the point in which we look to the stars 
and it's not actually so clear as we're just measuring time. We also look to them and then just feel very, very small and short and finite and significant because they're just glorious. It's immense, boundless. That generation to generation we know have looked to the stars and they have passed and the stars have remained. The clicking of God's clock, the stars, is always ticking, reminding us of what? That they will stay and we will go. There is great glory in the heavens, but we will not see it. For we, as a reminder, the stars preach to us every day. Romans 3.23 We have fallen. For we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And any clear night sky reminds us of what we are not. Because Romans 6 says that we have earned this. The wages of our sin, which is death. So there's no gospel in the stars. Spend your whole life studying the stars. There's nothing there except the clock looking back at you, ticking, ticking, ticking. But there's another image given to the stars. Genesis 15. So the first image image is Genesis 1. I'm going to do some pastoral arithmetic, so that means 14 verses later. I can do that in my head. Is Genesis 15. And we're given another image to the stars. And it's the gospel. God promised Abraham a great land and nation. He said, I'll make your name great. I will give you glory, that is. I will give you honor. That's in Genesis 12, flip over to Genesis 15. And Abraham says, but Lord, how may I know? How can I know that you're going to give me all these promises and these great people and nations and name and glory and blessing? How am I, how am I going to know that you will save? Genesis 15, 5, he says, God took Abraham and he brought him outside. And he said, look to the heavens and number the stars if you can count them. So shall your offspring be. <sighs> the glory of the heavens, the vanity of the days of the times of our life. He flipped it all in the word. Now we look to the heavens. Because he put a different word upon the stars. A different meaning behind the stars. And it is life. Now that you look to them and you see redemption. It's not just condemnation, but salvation. Not just the ticking of time and our inevitable condemnation under death. But now children promised for glory. You see what he did? He changed it all. That the stars also symbolize this promise that's been given. That there will be children who will inherit glory. Not for condemnation, but for salvation. One of those stars of Abraham is his grandchild Jacob. And he's old now. He's seen many stars. As we say, he's seen many moons. 
He's measured his days by these stars. And Pharaoh asked him, How old are you? That is, how many are the days of the years of your life? He says. And Jacob says, They are few. And they have been very evil. And he's on his deathbed and his eyes are dim with age. The stars, the timeline has taken a toll upon him. His natural eyes actually aren't even clear enough to see the stars anymore. But his inner vision has never been clearer. His spiritual sight is crystal. He is giving prophetic oracles. Navi, the the vision, the seer, the, the, the prophet who can see things down the line. See things that are to come. And that is what he does here on his deathbed. He merges these two symbols. The stars representing the passage of time, measuring of long days. And then also this great blessing of children to come for glory, made for glory. And he merges them both too by saying as he's there, Come my sons, gather around me and let me tell you what will happen in the latter days. Time. And not tomorrow. That Hebrew phrase, latter days, means a long time. It's used throughout scripture in Isaiah and Deuteronomy and Daniel. This is the first time ever. Achre hayomim. Same phrase. It's almost a technical term. Used all the time through scripture. This is the first time it's used. Let me tell you what will happen in the latter days. Days that only the stars can measure. The very next time it's ever used is in Numbers 24-14 where another wise man from the east named Balaam comes and looks over all the stars of Abraham the land of Israel. And he sees from a high place a whole multitude of people and Israelites. And he blesses them all and says, he looked upon this multitude and saw a single individual. In Numbers 24, 17, it says, I see him and not now. I behold him, but not near. Let me tell you what will happen, he says, in the latter days. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise, shall rise out of Israel. He saw too. He was a prophet that had clear vision. He saw all of Israel and one star emerged. And he had a scepter that was coming out of Israel. But that is for the latter days. The wisdom of these stars is that by days turning to seasons, and seasons during to years, and centuries into millennia, watch the stars, the scriptures are saying, measure your time and look for the latter days. And at the same time, don't forget that these stars also mean something more than just the passage of natural time. That is, watch the stars of Abraham. 
where there's wars and rumors of wars, in the middle of famine and fortune, and whatever might happen in the world, as nations rise, as nations fall, there is this fixation of a prophetic focus upon these stars that were promised to Abraham. Watch the stars, watch the clock. Watch the stars, watch the clock. And Jacob looks as an old man he is, and he calls all of his sons together. Now he's been given 12 stars. Abraham was given one. He had one son, Isaac. Isaac gave birth to Jacob. Jacob now has 12 whole stars in the constellation of the galaxy that is to come, in which God promised you couldn't even number these many people that were going to come into the land of Israel and be part of the covenant of salvation. There are billions of Christians on the world now, but still that number can be numbered. How much more for time to come? Is God really going to save the world? But here we have 12. And he brings his 12 stars around his deathbed. And he looks at them all with a prophetic clarity. G.K. Beale, a great scholar, points out that when we look at each of these oracles of the 12 sons, some are less important and some are more important. They're not all similar. Some prophetic oracles of them are more significant, some are less significant. And some occur sooner and some occur later. See, it's like looking at the stars on the night sky. To your vision, they're so far away that it really doesn't matter. They all just look out there. And he looks at all his sons that way as a constellation of stars. But in reality, if we were to get closer to them, these novas are light years apart. One is literally 300 light years closer. 300 light years closer. Lifetimes apart. But from such a great distance, that's the way prophetic oracles work. They're so far away that the prophet can only see so clearly, like we would the stars in the night sky. That we know they're there, we know they're coming, but we don't know the timeline, the relation between the light years between the stars. And he looks at all his sons this way and says things about them. Some are very, very relevant. Some are very, very far down the, the future. For example, what he says to Reuben, his firstborn, he says, you will be preeminent, you were preeminent in dignity and power, but you were unstable. And so he says, you're no longer preeminent. That's like now, immediately, you're not. You're not my firstborn. Joseph got the firstborn blessing. There was like nothing even future for Reuben's prophecy. Later on, he gives the prophecy to Simeon and Levi. And he says, you're violent. And so he says, Simeon... And Levi will be divided. They would, I would divide them among Jacob and scatter them among Israel. That didn't happen yet. But hundreds of years later, Simeon was so small, was put inside of the tribe of Judah and it became insignificant. And the Levites were dispersed throughout the whole nation because they never owned any land. So God scattered them. It happened years later. The prophecy was true. But see, what we're here for, what we're here for is this. That word that was given to Judah. The word that was given to Judah is the one that great rabbinic scholars and great Christian scholars through the centuries have wrote volumes about. It's much different.
Joseph was given a very long prophecy, and Judah are the two longest. But there's nothing, this whole story has been about Joseph. But there's nothing really said about him except the general fact of how he lived his life and that he's very blessed. If you see what was said to Joseph, it says, Archers shot bitterly at you, but your bow was unmoved. That is, your brothers tried to get you, but they didn't. Your blessings exceed your father. Blessings of your father will be beyond your parents, he says to Joseph. You'll be blessed beyond all the others, set apart from all your brothers. Okay, that's true. But there's nothing to look forward to in Joseph. It's just there. But then he turns to Judah. And there's this beautiful, I mean, this was, if there was a reason for me to get up this morning, I needed to preach this to you. There is this beautiful reality in which Judah merges into Joseph. And Joseph merges into Judah. Look what he says to Judah. Your brothers shall praise you. Judah. Your father's sons will bow their knee before you. Do you realize that was the prophecy given to Joseph at the beginning of his story? That all the stars of his brothers will be bowing down to him. And now, Joseph is set aside and given blessings, but no great predictions. And all this attention goes over to Judah and says, Now, your brothers will bow down to you, Judah. And you'll be preeminent above all your other brothers. It's echo, familiarity. You're reading the prophecies. But that sounds like Joseph. But Joseph's not getting it. Judah's getting it. And then all of a sudden, all this prosperity follows him. You'll bind your fowl to the vine. You, you will be so wealthy. Or a poor man would do anything to hold the life of a donkey or a horse. You'll be so wealthy. What's going to come from you, Judah? will be so much wealth and beauty and goodness is that... It's like a man doesn't even care about his, his colt or his horse. He just binds it to a, a, a wine vine. It's not a sturdy tree so that he can pull the vine, ruin it, eat all the, uh, all the grapes. A, a poor man would never tie a, a horse to a vine. You, ruin, you might lose the horse and you'll ruin the vine. But he's going to be so wealthy he doesn't even care. He'll just park his Cadillac anywhere he wants. And then he says... These, these blessings, he'll wash his garments in wine. His vestures in the blood of grapes. He'll be so wealthy, he'll do, his, he'll do his laundry with the best wine from Italy. You see, these images, this Hebrew poetry, what's coming from Judah is something different. It's remarkable to him. Now this. The lion he is, the lion, the, 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 the king, the tribe of Judah. It says this, this is the prophecy. The scepter shall not depart from Judah or the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. To him shall be all the obedience of all the peoples, all the nations. It's remarkable. That phrase, until tribute comes to him, is debated so, so much. 
The ESV, which we read this morning, translates it until tribute is brought to him. Or perhaps it could be until he to whom it belongs comes. The word is Shiloh. Shiloh. Until tribute, he will be prosperous, he will be king. The scepter, the rod will not depart from him. And I really do favor against the ESV. Hey, the NIV, man, they translated until he to whom it comes belongs. So Judah, you're going to have a scepter. And let's be honest, we've been reading the story and you have no right handing this thing. It's almost like uh, the, 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 the superhero movies uh, where you have Thor and his hammer. Who can pick that up? Who can do that? Who can hold this scepter? The very last, the very last king, as you look through all the kings of Judah, it goes from David, who failed, Solomon, who failed, Rehoboam, who failed, Uzziah, who failed, Hezekiah tried and he failed, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, the very last king of Judah, Zedekiah. God my righteousness is his name. And there, someone took his scepter. Where is the kingdom of Judah now? It doesn't exist. Is this prophecy false? The reality that Judah would have a scepter, the symbol of dominion and royal power, that cannot be taken. But in the 500s, Babylon came by and said, thank you very much, and took it. The prophet saw this. Ezekiel saw this, the writing on the wall, the inevitable collapse of the kingdom of Judah, that the lights would go out, the royal throne of Judah would fall. In Ezekiel 21, he says this, Zedekiah, you last king of Judah, you are a profane, wicked prince. Take off your turban, remove your crown. And then he says this phrase. You have to see the phrase, in Ezekiel 21, 27, he says, until he comes, until he comes, the one to whom judgment belongs. The very beginning of the kingdom of Judah is in Jacob's prophecy. Judah, you will be like a lion. You will subdue men. You will have a scepter. Until the one to whom it belongs comes. The very end of the line of Judah. The very last king, Zedekiah. Who is to be overtaken by Babylon. And Ezekiel comes in and says, it's done. You're all wicked. You've all failed. We haven't had one righteous king. Take off your crown. Until he comes till the one to whom it belonged comes do you see what Christmas is he is king of the world 
The prophecy is true. No one can take the scepter from his hand. He rules the nations. He is the king of Psalm 2. He will dash them like pottery with his rod, with his scepter. He died and rose again in glorious life, never to die. No sword or king or dominion may touch him. He is the one to whom it belongs. This is our Lord. This is the Christ. This is no surprise. Any true prophet who had his eyes truly open, from Jacob to Ezekiel knew there was one to come to whom it belonged. And the governments will be upon his shoulders. It's not Joseph. It's not Judah. It's Jesus. Do you see the stars? I'm ending with this. And don't be impressed that I know this word. I just looked it up for the illustration. Yesterday. A kilonova. Maybe you've heard of a supernova. I'm so glad this word existed. I needed it. A kilonova is a term that astrophysicists use when two stars, the big burning hot metal in the center of the stars begin to merge. And two stars collide. They call it a kilonova. Like a kilowatt, a thousand. They call it a kilonova because when these two stars collide, the light that forms is a thousand times brighter than all the other stars in the sky. This is how the prophetic oracles work. It's not Joseph. He's not the one. And it certainly isn't Judah. He's simply holding the scepter until the one to whom it belongs comes. But we have is these stars of Jacob, Judah, Joseph, everything we've seen in both their lives merge. They come to the center point. It burns brighter. It burns hotter. The image and all the prophetic wisdom a thousand times different. And you say, that is Jesus. That is my Christ. That is the king of the world. Do you see the words? Joseph was actually never king. He was only second. Second in Egypt. He never actually held the scepter. He never collected tribute. He only collected taxes and pushed them along to Pharaoh. He never brought wonderful prosperity. He never washed his garments in wine. He only sustained a famine and kept many people from just dying. And it's not Judah. He's wicked and all his lineage was. He's only holding the scepter. But look at the prophecy given to Judah. Judah looks like Joseph. Joseph looks like Judah. The stars merge in such a way that you, if you are looking and praying on your knees while you read the word, you see Christ. You see him. He's a thousand times brighter. Judah offered his own life as a sacrificial service like Joseph to save Benjamin. 
But the images of Joseph prophetically go to Judah. The oracle given to him is, your brothers shall praise you. They will bow down to you. You will be like Joseph. You will be the king of the world. Judah soaked his brother's garments in blood and sold him from slavery. And now he will be so blessed and forgiven that he will soak his garments in wine. Do you understand God's forgiveness in your life? Judah gave his own staff away as a pledge for prostitution. And God gives him a staff that rules the world, that he would be connected to that dignity. He murders his own brother and soaks his garment in blood. And God gives him back a garment washed in wine, that he would be given that much freedom and grace. Do you see your sins? Do you see God's grace upon your life? You give him all of your sins, all of your ugly, all of your curses, and he has so much grace. He has so much mercy. He has vats and vats of wine to wipe away all your blood, all of your sin. Don't you see we slaughtered him in his garment of blood and sold it. And he resurrected to life, took the scepter, said, I am king. Now come at my table and I have wine for you. You will drink this wine and I will drink this wine with you in my father's kingdom forever. Oh my gosh. The prophetic word that was given from Judah. He began his life crushing the blood of his brother. And he ends his life drinking the blood of grapes. Grace of God. What sin can his wine not wash from your garments? He has more than enough. He is the true blessed king who was born to us in a manger. He came down and saved us. And he's a marvelous savior. Could you please stand and praise him for that? In Jesus' name, Father God, Lord, we thank you. Lord, we thank you. The riches of your grace. That you have enough to wash away every sin. And you share your table with us. Thank you, Lord, for giving us this wine to drink that can never run out. Amen.